when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Declan McKavanagh. All kinds of utopian plans were flashing through his, Bloom's, busy brain. Education, the genuine article, literature, journalism, prize tidbits, up-to-date billing, hydros and concert tours and English watering resorts packed with theatres, turning money away. Duets in Italian with the accent perfectly true to nature and a quantity of other things. No necessity, of course, to tell the world and his wife from the housetops about it and a slice of luck. An opening was always wanted. Because he more than suspected he had his father's voice to bank his hopes on, which it was quite on the cards he had. So it'd be just as well, by the way, no harm, to trail the conversation in the direction of that particular red herring, just to... The cabbie read out of the paper he had got hold of that the former viceroy, Earl Cadogan, had presided at the Cab Drivers Association dinner in London somewhere. Silence with a yawn or two accompanied this thrilling announcement. Then the old specimen in the corner, who appeared to have some spark of vitality left, read out that Sir Anthony MacDonald had left Euston for the Chief Secretary's Lodge, or voyage to that effect, to which absorbing piece of intelligence, Echo answered why. Give us a squint at that literature, grandfather, the ancient mariner put it, manifesting some natural impatience. And welcome, answered the elderly party, thus addressed. The sailor lugged out from a case he had a pair of greenish goggles, which he very slowly hooked over his nose and both ears. Are you bad in the eyes? The sympathetic personage, like the town clerk, queried. Why, answered the seafarer with the tartan beard, who seemingly was a bit of a literary cove in his own small way, staring out of sea-green portholes, as you might well describe them, as I use as goggles reading. Sand in the Red Sea done that. One time I could read a book in the dark, manner of speaking. The Arabian Nights Entertainment was my favourite, and red as a rose is she. Thereupon he pawed the journal open and poured upon Lord only knows what, found drowned or the exploits of K. 
King Willow, Ironmonger having made a hundred and something second wicked, not out for nuts, during which time, completely regardless of ire, the keeper was intensely occupied loosening an apparently new or second-hand boot, which manifestly pinched him as he muttered against whoever it was sold it. All of them who were sufficiently awake enough to be picked out by their facial expressions, that is to say, either simply looking on glumly or passing a trivial remark. To cut a long story short, Bloom, grasping the situation, was the first to rise to his feet so as not to outstay their welcome, having first and foremost, being as good as his word, that he would foot the bill for the occasion, taking the wise precaution to unobtrusively motion to mine host as a parting shot, a scarcely perceptible sign, when the others were not looking, to the effect that the amount due was forthcoming, making a grand total of fourpence. The amount he deposited unobtrusively in four coppers, literally the last of the Mohicans, he having previously spotted on the printed price list for all who ran to read opposite to him in unmistakable figures, coffee, 2D, confectionery, dough, and honestly well worth twice the money once in a way, as Weatherup used to remark. Come, he counseled, to close the séance. Seeing that the ruse worked and the coast was clear, they left the shelter or shanty together, and the elite society of oilskin and company, whom nothing short of an earthquake would move out of their dolce far niente. Stephen, who confessed to still feeling poorly and fagged out, paused at the, for a moment, the door, too. One thing I never understood, he said, to be original on the spur of the moment, why they put tables upside down at night. I mean, chairs upside down on the tables in cafes. To which impromptu the never-failing Bloom replied, without a moment's hesitation, saying straight off, to sweep the floor in the morning. So saying, he skipped around nimbly, considering frankly, at the same time apologetic, to get on his companion's right, a habit of his, by the by, the right side being, in classical idiom, his tender Achilles. The night air was certainly now a treat to breathe, though Stephen was a bit weak on his pins. It will, the air, do you good, Bloom said, meaning also the walk in a moment. The only thing is to walk, then you'll feel a different man. It's not far, lean on me. Accordingly, he passed his left arm in Stephen's right and led him on accordingly. Yes, Stephen said uncertainly, because he thought he felt a strange kind of flesh of a different man approach him, sinuous and wobbly and all that. Anyhow, 
They passed the sentry box with stones, brazier, etc., where the municipal supernumerary ex Gumley was still to all intents and purposes wrapped in the arms of Murphy, as the adage has it, dreaming of fresh fields and pastures new. And apropos of coffin of stones, the analogy was not at all bad, as it was in fact a stoning to death on the part of 72 out of 80 odd constituencies that ratted at the time of the split, and chiefly the belotted peasant class, probably the self-same evicted tenants he had put in their lodgings. So they passed on to chatting about music, a form of art for which Bloom was a pure amateur, possessed the greatest love, as they made tracks arm in arm across Beresford Place. Wagnerian music, though confessedly grand in its way, was a bit too heavy for Bloom and hard to follow at the first go-off. But the music of Mercadantes, Huguenot, Meyerbeer's Seven Last Words on the Cross and Mozart's Twelfth Mass, he simply reveled in. The Gloria in that being to his mind the acme of first-class music as such, literally knocking everything else into a cocked hat. He infinitely preferred the sacred music of the Catholic Church to anything the opposite shop could offer in that line, such as those moody and sanky hymns or Bid me live and I will live thy Protestant to be. He also yielded to none in his admiration of Rossini's Sabbat Mater, a work simply abounding in immortal numbers, in which his wife, Madame Marion Tweedy, made a hit, a veritable sensation, he might safely say, greatly adding to her other laurels and putting the others totally in the shade in the Jesuit Father's Church in Upper Gardner Street, the sacred edifice being thronged to the doors to hear her with virtuosos, or virtuosi, rather. There was the unanimous opinion that there was none to come up to her, and suffice it to say, in a place of worship for music of a sacred character, there was a generally voiced desire for an encore. On the whole, though favouring preferably light opera of the Don Giovanni description and Marta, a gem in its line, he had a penchant, though with only a surface knowledge, for the severe classical school, such as Mendelssohn. And talking of that, taking it for granted, he knew all about the old favourites. He mentioned par excellence Lionel's air in Marta Mappari, which, curiously enough, he heard or overheard, to be more accurate, on yesterday, a privilege he keenly appreciated from the lips of Stephen's respected father, sung to perfection, a study of the number, in fact, which made all the others take a back seat. Stephen, in reply to a politely put query, said he didn't but 
launched out into praises of Shakespeare's songs, at least of in or about that period. The lutinist Dowland, who lived in Fetter Lane, near Gerard, the herbalist, who, anno ludendo hausi durandus, an instrument he was contemplating purchasing from Mr. Arnold Dometsch, whom Bloom did not quite recall, though the name certainly sounded familiar, for sixty-five guineas, and Farnaby and Son, with their ducks and commerce conceits, and Bird, William, who played the virginals, he said, in the Queen's Chapel, or anywhere else he found them, and one Tompkins, who made toys or airs, and John Bull. On the roadway, which they were approaching, while still speaking, beyond the swing chain, a horse dragging a sweeper, paced on the paven ground, brushing a long swathe of mire up, so that, with the noise, Bloom was not perfectly certain whether he had caught aright the allusion to sixty-five guineas and John Bull. He inquired if it was John Bull, the political celebrity of that ilk, as it struck him the two identical names as a striking coincidence. By the chains, the horse slowly swerved to turn, which, perceiving Bloom, who was keeping a sharp lookout as usual, plucked the other's sleeve gently, jocosely remarking, Our lives are in peril tonight. Beware of the steamroller. They thereupon stopped. Bloom looked at the head of a horse, not worth anything like sixty-five guineas, suddenly in evidence in the dark quite near, so that it seemed new. A different grouping of bones and even flesh, because palpably it was a four-walker, a, a hip-shaker, a black buttocker, a tail-dangler, a head-hanger, putting his hind foot foremost the while the lord of his creation sat on the perch, busy with his thoughts. But such a good poor brute, he was sorry he hadn't a lump of sugar. But, as he wisely reflected, you could scarcely be prepared for every emergency that might crop up. He was just a big, foolish, nervous, noodly kind of horse without a second care in the world. But even a dog, he reflected, take that mongrel in Barney Kiernan's of the same size, would be a holy horror to face. But it was no animal's fault, in particular if he was built that way, like the camel ship of the desert, distilling grapes into potsheen in his hump. Nine-tenths of them all could be caged or trained, nothing beyond the art of man barring the bees. Whale with a harpoon hairpin, alligator, tickle the small of his back and he sees the joke. Chalk a circle for a rooster. Tiger, my eagle eye. These timely reflections anent the brutes of the field occupied his mind, somewhat distracted from Stephen's words, while the ship of the street was manoeuvring, and Stephen went on about the highly interesting old 
What's this cyber saying? Oh, yes. My wife, he intimated, plunging in medias res, would have the, the greatest of pleasure in making your acquaintance, as she is passionately attached to music of any kind. He looked sideways in a friendly fashion at the side face of Stephen, image of his mother, which is not quite the same as the usual blackguard type they unquestionably had an indubitable hankering after, as he was perhaps not that way built. Still, supposing he had his father's gift, as he more than suspected, it opened up new vistas in his mind, such as Lady Fingal's, Irish Industries concert on the preceding Monday, and aristocracy in general. Exquisite variations he was now describing on an air of Youth Here Has End by Jans Peter Svenlich, a Dutchman of Amsterdam, where the Fraus came from. Even more, he liked an old German song of Johannes Yip about the clear sea and the voices of sirens, sweet murderers of men, which boggled Bloom a bit. Von der Sirenen listigkeit tun die Poeten dichten. These opening bars he sang and translated extempore. Bloom, nodding, said he perfectly understood and begged him to go on by all means, which he did. A phenomenally beautiful tenor voice like that, the rarest of boons which Bloom appreciated at the very first note he got out, could easily, if handled properly, by some recognized authority on voice production, such as Baraclough, and being able to read music into the bargain, command its own price where baritones were ten a penny, and procure for its fortunate possessor in the near future an entree into fashionable houses in the best residential quarters of financial magnates in a large way of business and titled people where, with his university degree of B.A., a huge ad in its way, and gentlemanly bearing to all the more influence the good impression he would infallibly score a distinct success, being blessed with brains which also could be utilized for the purpose and other requisites, if his clothes were properly attended to, so as to the better worm his way into their good graces, as he a youthful tyro in society's sartorial niceties hardly understood how a little thing like that could militate against you. In fact, it was only a matter of months, and he could easily foresee him participating in their musical and artistic conversaciones during the festivities of the Christmas season for choice, causing a slight flutter in the dovecoats of the fair sex, and being made a lot of by ladies out for sensation, cases of which, as he happened to know, were on record, in fact, without giving the show away. He himself, once upon a time, if he cared to, could easily have uh, added to which, of 
course would be the pecuniary emolument by no means to be sneezed at going hand in hand with his tuition fees. Not, he parenthesized, that for the sake of filthy lucre, he need unnecessarily embrace the lyric platform as a walk of life for any lengthy space of time, but a step in the required direction it was, beyond nay or yea, and both monetarily and mentally. It contained no reflection on his dignity in the smallest, and it often turned into uncommonly handy to be handled as check at a much-needed moment when every little helped. Besides, though taste laterally had deteriorated to a degree, original music like that, different from the conventional rut, would rapidly have a great vogue, as it would be decided novelty for Dublin's musical world, after the usual hackneyed run of catchy tenor solos foisted on a confiding public by Ivan St. Austell and Hilton St. Just and their Janus Omne. Yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he could, with all the cards in his hand, and he had a capital opening to make a name for himself and win a high place in the city's esteem, where he could command a stiff figure, and booking ahead, give a grand concert for the patrons of the King Street House. Given a backer up, if one were forthcoming, to kick him upstairs, so to speak, a big if, however, with some impetus of the go-ahead sort to obviate the inevitable procrastination which often tripped up a too much fetid prince of good fellows and it did not detract from the other by one iota as being his own master he would have heaps of time to practice literature in his spare moments when desirous of so doing without it clashing with his vocal career or containing anything derogatory whatsoever as it was a matter for himself alone. In fact, he had the ball at his feet, and that was the very reason why the other, possessed of a remarkably sharp nose for smelling a rat of any sort, hung on to him at all. The horse was just then, and later on, at a propitious opportunity he proposed, Blum did, without any way prying into his private affairs, on the full step in were Angel's principal, advising him to sever his connection with a certain budding practitioner, who he noticed was prone to disparage, and even to a slight extent, with some hilarious pretext, when not present, deprecate him, or whatever you like to call it, which, in Bloom's humble opinion, threw a nasty sidelight on that side of a person's character. No pun intended. The horse, having reached the end of his tether, so to speak, halted, and rearing high a proud feathering tail, added his quota by letting fall on the ground, which the brush would soon brush up and polish, three smoking globes of turds. Slowly, three times, one after another, from a full crupper he mired, and humanely his driver waited till he or she had ended. 
patient in his scythed car. Side by side, Bloom, profiting by the contretemps, with Stephen, passed through the gap of the chains, divided by the upright, and stepping over a strand of mire, went across towards Gardner Street Lower, Stephen singing more boldly, but not loudly, the end of the ballad. Und alle Schiffe brücken. The driver never said a word, good, bad, or indifferent. He merely watched the two figures as he sat on his low-backed car, both black, one full, one lean, walked towards the railway bridge to be married by Father Maher. As they walked, they at times stopped and walked again, continuing their tete-a-tete, which of course he was utterly out of, about sirens, enemies of man's reason, mingled with a number of other topics of the same category, usurpers, historical cases of the kind, while the man in the sweeper car, or as you might as well call it, the sleeper car, who in any case couldn't possibly hear because they were too far simply sat in his seat near the end of Lower Gardner Street and looked after their low-backed car. <laughs>